second Saturday, I got zapped, so I'm probably like you. I'm definitely ready for spring about this time. You guys ready when February seems like it's 45 days long instead of 28? Seems like the longest month of the year, but uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we continue our series on the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church located in modern-day Greece. He started this church in about 50 A.D., and the letter that he wrote to them may very well be the first book of the New Testament. Okay. Now, last couple weeks, we've been looking at characteristics of fruitful ministry. Characteristics of fruitful ministry. But now we're switching gears here. And we're going to be looking at three key points to our passage. Three key points to the passage we have. So if you're still trying to find 1 Thessalonians, uh, 8.96 in the Bible's in front of you. Sorry. 9.86. All right. 9.86. So... Three key points here. Paul, as he's been doing through the letter, is incredibly thankful for this church, right? He loves this church located in Thessalonica. He did a lot of that in chapter 1. And now he goes back to giving reasons why he is thankful for this church. And he gives one reason in verse 13, and that is that they received the word of God. They receive the word of God. In verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, it, what, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul was thankful that these believers here at the church of Thessalonica, they regarded his teaching as the Word of God. They did not regard it as the teaching of man. So what made Paul different? Well, it wasn't anything about Paul, per se, that was different, okay? It wasn't because he was, you know, eloquent or smart or whatever, forceful personality, but it was that he was an apostle, He was a chosen representative of Jesus. So Paul was significant because Jesus had commissioned him, right? And he had commissioned the apostles to establish the church and to establish its teachings. And so Paul, when he preached the gospel to them, and then when it was later written down, it was the word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write it in such a way that it was the words of Paul, but it was the Word of God and communicating the will and mind of God in such a way that it made a powerful impact on them. That's what's different about the Bible, isn't it? It's not just the Word of man. It's the Word of God. Second Peter one twenty one says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And since this, this was the word of God, it's necessarily true. It's necessarily authoritative. It's necessarily has the capability of transforming our lives. So the Thessalonians received the word of God for what it is. It's the word of God. And friends, that's what we need to do. We need to receive the scripture as the word of God. This is so critical. Because Satan knows that if he can get you to lose confidence in the Word of God, questioning, is this really the Word of God, right? Isn't that the original temptation and it has not changed? So it's essential that you and I would regard the Bible as indeed the Word of God. That it is inspired. That it is not just a collection of nice advice, sage advice about how to deal with situations, or it's not just a nice collection of good stories, right, that are memorable, and we remember, you know, this story and that story, but it, we don't really think of it more than that. It is the Word of God. Both Old Testament and New Testament should be regarded as the Word of God. When Jesus comes along, He regards the Old Testament all of it as the Word of God. Constantly quoting from it, reciting it, and so forth. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So you see that word there, Scripture. It's the Greek word graphe. It appears 51 times in the New Testament. And every time it appears in the New Testament, it's actually referring to the Old Testament. So Paul's saying all Old Testament Scripture is breathed out by God, right? It's, it's the breath of God. You're literally hearing and experiencing God speaking through His Word. So the Old Testament is the Word of God. And likewise, the New Testament is the Word of God. Paul saying as much here in 1 Thessalonians. He's saying that his teachings were the Word of God. 2 Peter 3, 5 to 6, 15 to 16 says this, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So don't feel bad sometimes, right? When you're reading, you don't understand what, what the Bible's saying. Paul's saying, look, or Peter's saying, sometimes Paul writes stuff, I don't understand what he's saying, right? So even Peter had a little trouble. So don't feel bad. But he goes on to say, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do. What does he say there? The other scriptures. So again, he's saying, the other scriptures. So the Old Testament, right, scriptures, but the other scriptures. So already they recognized in the early church that what Paul was writing was inspired scripture. Now, did you also notice in our verse there that it says, the word of God which is at work in you believers? God wants the word of God to continue to do a work in your heart. But here's the thing, as powerful as the Word of God is, and we know it is so powerful, it also requires faith in us 
so that it does its work. In other words, you can have the Bible, but if you don't believe the Bible, not just for conversion of experiencing the salvation that Jesus gives, but if you don't, if you don't come to the Bible with ongoing faith, it doesn't do you a lot of good, does it? You must continue to come to the Bible and wanting to learn and grow from it. Friends, if you want to grow spiritually, I'm convinced that the most important thing is to learn and obey the Scriptures. That is the key thing in the Christian life, is to understand the Word of God and then to apply it in your life. You might say, well, I could use some help. Well, you know what? That's what the church is about, isn't it? That's what the church is about. And so maybe if you're a female here, and you think, boy, I'd like to get more in the Word, but I struggle just getting started, or I read a little bit here and there, and I just, you know, peter out. Let me encourage you. We started these on-track ladies' studies uh, five or six months ago, and the ladies have really benefited from this, having a, a... a set of passages that they're reading together and then having accountability where they're coming together and say, yes, I read or I read this much or whatever it might be, and then sharing the things and the insights that they're gleaning from the Scriptures themselves. It is so helpful when you do this as a group, right? Just working? I don't know. It's helpful, isn't it, right? To come together. And then for the men, going to be starting a Tuesday night group in a couple of weeks. That'll be another opportunity for men to come together and say, how can we sharpen each other in the Word of God? Friends, we have such a treasure in the Word of God. Really, I believe each of us needs to come to a place where we just say, I am going to make the Word of God the treasure of my heart. I'm going to fall in love with the Word of God. And I want to know it to the fullest, and I want to live it out. Someone has written uh, some beautiful words anonymously about the Bible. It says, quote, It is the book that reveals the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts binding, its histories true, and its decisions immutable. Read read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. The Bible contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good is its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill your memory, rule your heart, and guide your feet in true righteousness and true holiness. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully, meditatively, searchingly, devotionally, and study it constantly, perseveringly, and industriously. Read it through and through and until it becomes a part of your being and generates faith that will move mountains. So the Thessalonians knew this firsthand, and Paul says, I am thankful that you received the word of God. 
Second reason he is thankful is that they persevered through persecution. Verse 14, Paul says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So Paul says, look, despite being young in the faith, you persevered in the faith despite being persecuted from your countrymen, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you guys remember, when Paul went there with his missionary team, he started the church and they were run out of town, basically, right, by the authorities because they were, uh, some of his Jewish brethren rounded up some false accusers and the, the Roman officials put them out of the city, basically. And even after Paul left, some of, uh, some of those same Jewish brethren went to the next city, which is a two-day walk to stir up the crowds and get them kicked out of that city, the city of Berea, right? And then after Paul left, apparently they were still facing accusations about Paul there in Thessalonica, and the church was being persecuted. So in this way, Paul says, you imitated the churches that were in Judea. Remember, that's the, those were the churches that were the first churches that began. Those were in Judea, the region of Judea. And they had experienced many years of persecution from the Jews. Now, in verse 15, Paul mentions four ways that the Jews brought persecution. He says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So he mentions those four ways. First, he says they killed Jesus. So it was the Jewish religious leaders who instigated the false charges about Jesus and then handed him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who crucified Jesus as a result of the cries of the people. Now, the Romans were to blame for Jesus' death too. But as Paul points out there, the Jews instigated the plot. Second, they killed the prophets. Now, as you read the Old Testament, one of the saddest things is how the prophets of the people of Israel were often persecuted by their own people. Isn't that crazy? They were speaking for God, but yet they were often persecuted, sometimes even killed. You read about it, King Ahab and Jezebel, that wonderful pair, right? And how they, they literally killed, it seems, many of the prophets. We read about in Nehemiah 9, the history of Israel, where he says, listen to these words, nevertheless, speaking of the Jewish people, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Jesus says the same thing. Remember his parable of the, uh, the, parable of the tenants, how that some of the, 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 he sent some of the servants to go back to take care of the farm there, the, the wine, the vineyard, and they were killed, and that represented the prophets. And then in Matthew 23, Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem that very last time, remember when he uttered these words? He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. The Jews also drove out Paul and his team. As we said, they kind of stirred up the mob scene that drove Paul out. And Paul had already been experiencing persecution. If you go back to chapter 14, when Paul was in Lystra, when he went there and he started ministering, he was stoned by the hands of the Jews, literally left for dead. They thought he was dead. He revived and then came back and kept on ministering. 
So this was ongoing things that Paul was experiencing. Fourth, Paul notes that their actions displease God. Displease God. You might say, well, why is that such a big deal? That sounds kind of like a generic statement. Why is that a big deal? It's actually a big deal because Paul uses that phrase to please God a lot in his writings. It was characteristic of someone who really honored and walked the walk with God. They, they, they were pleasing to God. So Paul just used it in chapter 2, verse 4. He uses it again in chapter 4, verse 1 of Thessalonians. But Paul's saying, look, these folks, they were not pleasing God because they were persecuting us because of this. They were not pleasing God. Paul knew this very well. Remember when he confronted, he was confronted by Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts 9-4? Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? His actions displeased God. Paul thought he was doing the will of God by persecuting Christians, but he was actually displeasing God. Now, in verse 16, Paul continues, he says that the Jews oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, let's be clear what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that the Jewish people were categorically opposed to all mankind or that they hated all mankind. Rather, what he's getting at is that humanity needs to hear the gospel, don't they? Humanity needs to hear the gospel in order to be saved. So by opposing Paul spreading the gospel, they were opposing humanity. And they did not want the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. They were opposing them knowing God. And by doing this, they were opposing the will of God. Because in the Old Testament, Scripture had predicted that the Messiah, when he comes along, he was going to spread the gospel not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Isaiah 46, 49, 6, the Lord says to the person identified as a servant of the Lord, who's the Messiah, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Okay? Now, finally, Paul mentions how they experience God's wrath upon them at last. What does he mean by that? Very strong words. Well, you know, Scripture speaks of God's salvation as both something that happens in the present and in the future. It happens in the present when someone believes in Christ, their sins are forgiven. But it also refers to to the future because in the future you'll be spared the wrath of God on Judgment Day. Likewise, God's wrath is something that happens in the present and happens in the future. Primarily, Scripture speaks about God's wrath in the future, but it does talk about in the present that God's wrath is unleashed at times in the present day. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, we don't like to think about that, but that's what the Bible teaches. That God exerts His wrath now as we fill up the measure of our sins. And this is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the future if there is no repentance. Does that make sense? And so Paul was saying that in some capacity this had happened to them, the Jews, at that time. 
He doesn't specify what he's talking about. So people have looked and said, well, maybe there were some historical incidents that took place at that time. Well, that might have been the case. There was a famine in 47 AD. There was a massacre of a thousand, more than a thousand Jews in 49 AD. The, the Jews were expelled from Rome in 49 AD. Perhaps it was a combination of all these things. I don't know. But Paul was clear and he, he understood it to be an act of judgment that was a foreshadowing of a final judgment if there was no repentance. Now, before moving on, I, just, I do want to make clear about these words that Paul gives. They're very strong words, aren't they? But it is important to understand that Paul, sometimes people criticize, I guess I should say, sometimes cr people criticize Paul as being anti-Semitic by these words. But is that the case? Let me give you three reasons why I don't think that's the case. First, Paul was Jewish, right? Paul himself was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. Paul was very proud of his ethnicity, right? He points to its remarkable benefits. Go read Romans 9. There were great benefits the Jewish people had. He never gives any hint of rejecting his Jewish heritage. And it's, and it's, a, it's just sort of a, a given that Scripture blanketly condemns all racism, right? So this isn't, this isn't a race, these aren't racist comments that Paul is making. Second, Paul loved his Jewish brethren. He loved them. He loved them so much that he was willing to basically go into any town, and who knew what might happen to him? Many times he was beaten half to death by them because he loved them so much. He kind of captures a little bit of this sentiment in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Remember these words when Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears with me witness in the Holy Spirit, saying, look, what I'm about to say is really the case, all right? That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans 10.1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you get what he's saying there? Paul's saying, look, I love my Jewish brethren so much that I would be willing to lose my salvation if they would gain their salvation. Now we know that that is an impossibility, but he's just sort of throwing it out there as an expression of the deep and profound love. I mean, do you have that kind of love for other people in your life? It was a rhetorical question. But thank you. Not many of us do. That's the type of love that he had for his people. And then thirdly, Paul recognized the role of the Jews in the persecution of the early church. If anyone knew about this, it was Paul, right? I mean, he was one of the chief instigators of the early church and the persecutors. But you know what? Paul wasn't under orders. He, or he was under orders. So this was a whole chain of persecution um, about the early church. And Paul's just simply recognizing what happened. So friends, this, this was not an issue of race. This was an issue of sin. The sin of unbelief. And Paul was simply one in a long line of many people who had uh, chided and admonished and castigated their Jewish brethren 
about unbelief. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus, now Paul, rebuking the people there for their unbelief. And notice that this is not all of the Jewish people. This is some of them, right? Those who were persecuting the people of God. And let's not lose track of the main point here. Paul's point, he kind of gets on a digression there, but his main point was, look, I'm thankful for you Thessalonians because you had experienced persecution at the hand of your countrymen, Jews and Gentiles, but yet you persevered, just like those first churches experienced persecution, and they too persevered. Now next week I want you to come back because we're going to talk more about the persecution that the Thessalonians were experiencing. Because I think it's really important. When we hear about persecution in the early church, we often just think, okay, everybody was getting killed, and that was really the only form of persecution. There was a lot of different ways that people were persecuted in the early church. And that also translates to things that we, you and I might experience in our day, and I would say increasingly might experience in the United States of America. So it's important to understand what they were going through and how we can live faithfully as a persecuted church, seeing that happen more and more in our country. So that'll be next week. Now in verse 17, all the way through the rest of chapter 3, Paul changes gears. You see, in chapter 2, he was, in a sense, trying to answer all these critics, these people who were saying that Paul wasn't, he lacked integrity in his ministry. These accusations that people were making about him, that he was in it for the money, or that as soon as something bad happened, Paul left town and he didn't want to come back. No doubt they were hearing these things. But now Paul kind of changes gears and talks about why he was absent and why he continued to remain absent from them and he shares his heart with them. These are really beautiful words that Paul shares to the church. He says in verses 17 to 20 these things. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul says, if you notice there, back in verse 17, that they were torn away from them. Remember when he was kicked out of the city. He uses very strong language. Literally what he says there in the Greek language is, having been orphaned from you. Orphaned from you. The idea is that they were snatched from their family. Isn't that powerful? I mean, what could be more heartbreaking than that thought of being snatched away from your family? And that's how Paul saw it, that he was orphaned from his family. But though they were separated physically, they were still in Paul's heart. And he wanted to go see them. And he had made concrete steps. It wasn't just like, hey, you know, we'll try to make this happen someday. No, Paul was making concrete plans, but he says he was hindered. Who was hindering him? That's interesting, isn't it? Satan was hindering him. And it's interesting that Paul, that word there, hinder, was used at the time when armies were at war 
and maybe one army was fleeing from another, and they didn't want that army to keep pursuing them, you know what they would do? They would put slits in the road so that it would stop the pursuing armies, right? It would hinder them. It would stop them. And that's what Paul says. That, Look, I wanted to pursue you, but Satan put slits in the road, and I couldn't follow there. He doesn't say what Satan did. But we just know that he was hindering him from returning. Now in the passage, he speaks about the return of Christ, right? Doesn't he say that in there? We see this again and again and again in the book of Thessalonians, the return of Christ. He says when Christ returns, that the Thessalonians are going to be his hope, his joy, and his crown of boasting. Isn't that cool? His crown of boasting. Now, when you think of crown, we think of the royal crown. That's not what they were using back then. It was actually the crowns they would use at the athletic games. When they would make it out of some type of branch, like a palm branch or olive branch, and they would put it on their heads. And so Paul says that, look, you guys are going to be my crown when Christ returns. It's powerful, isn't it? Now, the question might come to your mind then, so Paul is going to have this crown on his head, these Thessalonians, when Christ returns, and he sees the impact that he made on these Thessalonians. So is that just Paul? Is that just Paul because Paul was an apostle? He was mightily used by God, and he, he led multitudes to Christ. Is that just Paul that gets a crown like that? Do you think that's God's will? That just the apostles, maybe, maybe a few people like Billy Graham or whoever? I don't think that's his point. I think this imagery is meant for all of us. That God wants all of us, when Christ returns, to have a crown of ministry. That we would look around and have people that are our joy, our glory, and our crown of boasting. And by boasting, we're not talking about a prideful boasting, but just a, a, a sense of exaltation and the work that you've done by the grace of God, right? You say, well, how do I get that crown? That sounds kind of good. Well, I think it happens in two ways, and it's very simple. First, I think it happens with Christians with whom we shared the gospel. Paul went there and he led people to Christ. And each of us should seek to have people that we help lead to Christ. And we will celebrate knowing that we had a part. You say, well, I'm not really good at leading somebody to Christ. You know what? I'm not either. That's not really my great strength. But what the Bible does say is that you don't have to have the gift of an evangelist. But you do have to have an obedience to want to sow the seed, right? Because here's the thing. Most people need to hear the gospel many times before they finally believe. Many times. And so all of us have a role to play in dropping that seed here, dropping that seed there, dropping that seed there. I've loved to hear the testimonies through the years of people who join our church or just other conversations that people have with them 
And it's remarkable how they talk about how, oh yeah, uh, I, I was sitting at a, at a restaurant one time and someone left me a tract. And I read it. And it really got me thinking. They didn't become a Christian then, but it got them thinking. And then they had a f- conversation with a co-worker. And then that got them thinking even more. And then it was this, and then it was that. All of those people contributed a part, didn't they? See, I think sometimes we fall into this mistake into thinking, oh, well, it's, it's only the evangelists. They're the ones who are going to have all the crowns. They're going to walk around with these huge King Kong-sized crowns on their heads, and all of us are going to have nothing. God wants you to participate and sow seeds in many people's lives. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? That's what we need to be doing. Never minimize that tract you leave. That booklet you, do, you leave. That conversation you have where you walk away and you think, that didn't go that great. If you shared the gospel as best you can, God will use that. And then second, I would say, Christians with whom we strengthen their faith. Paul knew that becoming a Christian was just the beginning, right? We need to be strengthened. That was his heart. That's why he thanked God at the beginning of his letter for their, remember how he thanked uh, God for their uh, labor of love, their work of faith, their steadfastness of hope. Remember that back in chapter 1? Paul, he knew he had to continue to build them up, and he was doing so. And friends, there are many ways to build up people in the faith, isn't there? You can teach them. You can pray for them. You can encourage them. You can fellowship with them. You can give money to support uh, a ministry they're involved with like Jody going to Africa, or if they're in a financial need and you help them in some way, maybe you come alongside and and serve them away in, in some type of capacity that's a blessing to them. It's not just for certain limited things. There are countless ways to build up the body of Christ. So let me encourage you to do this. Because God wants each of us to have your own ministry crown. And God is gracious to us to tell us that this is what he's looking for. Isn't God good? I mean, don't you like those teachers who give you the study guide for the exam so you know what to look for, right? You know what's going to be on the exam. God is telling you what He wants you to do ahead of time. This is what He's looking for. He is not impressed one iota with how much money you have in your bank account unless you're doing something for the kingdom. He's not impressed with all of your gifts or all of your accomplishments in lives, all of the trophies we have, unless they're for the kingdom. He's telling you what matters. You know what matters? The glory of God and people. That's what matters. To sow the seed as much as you can. To sow the seed. To sow the seed. So you'll get to heaven one day and say, Wow, that guy that I shared a track with back in 1975, he got saved that day. I firmly believe that's going to happen. You will be surprised. 
Your eyes will be open just like you will be. Just as we're mar- we marvel at how big this universe is, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I think you will be like that on Judgment Day when you stand before Christ. If you so faithfully, you will be stunned and amazed at all those things that you did that you felt like maybe didn't make a difference. You will be amazed. And all those investments, all of that pouring into strengthening the church. And you see, man, that person was just about to go off a cliff spiritually, but I pulled him aside because the Spirit of God was prompting me to pray for that person. That helped that person. Who knows what might have happened if I didn't do that? Or me taking the time to teach those young people in that Sunday school class how they got it, and then they grew up and knew the Lord and the difference they made. I had no idea. You're going to look around and be blown away. That is our crown. That's why you labor. That's why you serve. God will not disappoint you. Amen? He will not disappoint. He is a great God, and he has told us in advance what he wants his people to be doing. So let's get busy. Amen? And look forward to that crown of ministry. Let us pray. (coughs) Lord, we... Thank you that we've been able to open up the bread of life. Covered a lot of ground here today, Lord. Seeing the word of God as the word of God. Jesus said we can't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Help us, Lord, we pray, to continue to make the word of God our daily feast. Pray your spirit would help us to understand it, grow us in it, live it out. Lord, help us, we pray, as we we seek to serve you, knowing that one day we will stand before you. And Lord, may our hearts expand like the Apostle Paul, such a big-hearted man, Christ-centered man, that his crown wasn't the numbers of people he led to Christ, or all his accomplishments, but it was the people that he had impacted. Forgive us, Lord, for losing sight of that sometimes. When we get sidetracked with the humdrum of serving, when we get disappointed and not seen as much, Lord, we know that you take all of it into account. And Lord, forgive us for minimizing what you do with those seeds that we plant. A great God who runs this universe with such intricacy and precision and care will certainly care for those seeds that we use and we, and we plant for your glory. So Lord, we thank you for this wonderful reminder from your word. We pray that we would respond as your people have called us to respond. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.